enjoying a little bit of that Christmas music. It's on the way, isn't it? We're grateful for that. The um, text to which we're turning our attention to is chapter 26 of Acts. So chapter 26, if you turn there in the book of Acts, we're going to be reading uh, there from the text uh, the entire chapter as we look at uh, this next section in the Acts of the Apostles. And so let's look at what we see where Paul is now, the defense before Agrippa. He begins, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And he said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation, and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews, and they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this I hope I am accused, for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem, And I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus within the authority, with authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what is what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, 
but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now may God bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. Amen. 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 There's something off the start that really gives the flavor of sovereignty, doesn't it? As we end the text there, if he had not appealed to Caesar, he could have been set free. But we know what has been promised. Chapter 23, verse 11, God himself, the Lord promised that Paul would go to Rome and it is in fulfillment to the prophecy that Jesus himself made. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel 24, where it speaks about that this gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world and then the end would come. And speaking of what the Greek says there, the ukamene, which speaks of the Roman world, that steward of the world at the time. When Paul was preaching, he was preaching in mind of a day that would come, the day of the Lord upon the people with travail like none other in history. All that he is saying is a witness to the land and to the peoples that judgment would come upon them who reject Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts exists so it would tell us of a testimony that God did this in this day of apostolic history and he will do this throughout history until the very end. We find that it is a greater to lesser argument because what he did in the apostolic days was extraordinary and therefore we who are observing the history written by Luke and testified and confirmed even outside of the Bible by the other historians of these events, we find that God is faithful to his word and he has done everything he has promised to do. And the reason we can have confidence that what we are speaking about today is indeed exactly what Paul intended and what Luke in particular intended in writing these things is because we have Christ's words telling us what these events would mean ahead of time. As we come to this third repetition of Paul's testimony, it is not put in a vacuum and it's not put in vain. He tells this testimony a third time, yes, to underscore it, but he includes details here throughout that are particularly set forth to prove witness to the state or the civil sphere that Christianity is innocent. The way he does this is very peculiar. He begins in addressing King Agrippa in particular because he is, at this time, that representative of the civil sphere on the way up to Caesar Nero by the very end. But what takes place in this text is an exoneration and a removal of guilt in regards to Paul, and not just Paul, but Christianity. Therefore, we're not reading just about Paul, we're reading about Paul representing Christianity to the civil sphere and showing its innocence. And we've already seen it's already been proven innocent before the religious realm. The chief priests and the elders could find nothing that this man has done wrong that would condemn him to death. So unfinished business is this. Is Christianity a legal religion at this time in Rome or not? So Paul, in facing Agrippa, he begins with a defense. He will end with a declaration to Agrippa himself in regards to the gospel, but he begins with a defense. And to be faithful, he has to do both. The first defense he is glad to give. It's interesting that he says, I consider myself fortunate. I wonder if the preaching of the gospel throughout our land today carries with it a sense of gratitude and cheerfulness and thankfulness that recognizes the great opportunity, the joyous occasion in which we are, we are permitted to give a defense of the Christian faith before the world, throughout the world. And again, the gospel gets preached no matter what, but 
It doesn't mean that there's not a right way and a wrong way to preach it. And it's very contrary to the gospel to not find it to be the greatest news that's known to man or ever could be known. And that to stand before a king like Agrippa who actually has knowledge of at least the prophets, Moses, and of the scriptures is an extraordinary event worthy of a joy and cheerfulness. The word he uses is makarios, which is the word blessed. It's like in the Beatitudes where it says blessed is this or blessed is the man in the Psalms. Um, it would be that equivalent of a word. Blessed. Some scholars, I would say probably most that I've read, do make a distinguishing mark between happiness and blessedness. There's an argument that they are equivalent. Whatever the case, this word is translated fortunate here. And what Paul is indicating to us, or at least Luke communicating about Paul, is Paul saw this, this moment, as a token of God's favor in his life to stand and have this opportunity. He saw, you got to imagine this, and the scripture invites us to imagine it. If all you have is the propositional truth with no imagination of what's happening in the text, you ought to be pitied because you're missing half the picture of what's happening. You are called to envision what is being said of the words of these pages. And the words of these pages indicate you have a man who's in chains. You have a man standing before a king. A man who's known basically as, as a small, weak, insignificant figure before this man who has come in with great pomp and circumstance. It's a, as we learned last week, a fantasia, a fantasy. It's all a fantasy. It's all a show. And let me just say, add extra of the matter here today, there's a lot of ministries that are nothing but a show. They're manipulating you, they're capitalizing on you in order to promote their own agendas and their own kingdoms. It's a show. Recognize it all. Some of them have some good truth, but it's a show. We are called to preach the Bible for the, the, the souls of people and lives and families in this world, we're called to preach the truth that's sufficient to save souls and to equip the saints and to give you what it takes in order to live a life pleasing to God all the way to glory. We're not called to put on some spectacle of a show. If we stand in chains before a king and that's the pulpit that we're called to preach, it is more glorious than all the pomp and circumstance that that man is robed with. It doesn't mean that we do not care about the excellence of the gospel and its presentation. It's a shame to the church today in many places that they care more for their paneled houses than they do care for the church of God itself. So we're not throwing out the fact that things matter that look beautiful. And certainly we know that's not true to the extreme because we don't come up in here looking just however we want to look. Everything gets down to extremes, doesn't it? In our society, we go one way or another, but we never really are following the gospel and the word of God when it comes to these matters. And we go to extremes and we make the lives of people miserable around us because we're either so focused on putting on a show or we're so focused on not doing so that we lose the gospel altogether. The question is, what does the authoritative word say? He expects of the church and of us individually and of families. What does he call us to? It's not a middle ground issue. We're not middle men or middle women for that matter. We're called to be followers of Jesus Christ. And in following Jesus Christ, we follow what the authority of the scriptures indicates and infers to us here in the scriptures. And so he is standing before king and Paul has more glory than this king that he stands before. And this king is enticed by it. He's he's he sees Paul is full of joy. He's full of that which Peter would say, though he did see him, but he was full of the same. Like we would say, you didn't see him, but you believe in him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's unfortunate that many preachers even have gotten 
to points in the text and they say, oh, I haven't experienced all of this and so I can't preach that. My goodness. If we get to a text we haven't experienced and it's time to preach it, so we might. And great men have gotten to those points and not finished books because they got to that point and they say, I don't know anything of this. Well, I don't know anything, a way to know of it unless you do preach it and you do study it and you do work at it so you can figure out exactly what the author's intending for the church to have gotten it then and what he in, in turn desires for it to be universal throughout the world. He stands with joy. I wonder in your service, for not all are called to be preachers, I wonder in your service if you look at the opportunities in the midst of your sufferings to testify of Jesus by the excellence of your work, by the kindness of your words, by the display of your humble um, service in whatever vocation you were in, I wonder if it is characterized by Macarius. I wonder if there's a sense in which it is a joy to hit the hammer on the anvil of your work because you recognize it's an opportunity to afford it to you by God to glorify Him. The Reformed Confessions say it clearly that we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There is a universality that came out of that period after darkness light when the family, marriage, work, vocation, everything began to see not as a great divide from the ministry, but it was all part of ministry. And I returned to an account that I heard in a broadcast a few weeks ago where it was said that the great Sinclair Ferguson of our day who preaches the gospel so well and helps us to understand the Bible in many places. Again, he's just a man. He's still living. Um, no guarantee to end well except that he follow Christ. But the point of the matter is, is that the account was given by Dr. R.C. Sproul, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, concerning Sinclair's conversion. He said there was a woman that he heard that is Sinclair typing among all these other typists. And he asked the woman, he said, why do you do what you do with such excellence and such consistency and such precision? I mean, what, why? As a lost man, he's asking, why, why are you doing your work so well why why you stand out that way? And, he, and she said, years ago, I dedicated my typing to the glory of God. And I wonder if we've just, we've, have we dedicated what we do to the glory of God? Have we dedicated our families to the glory of God? Have we said that we exist for the glory of God? Has that been settled? Because there's no joy that can ever be had if that's not settled. If one is not settled on all these things as being favorable opportunities and tokens of His grace that we get to do, it's really hard to be thankful. And in our information overload, all we have is stuff being pummeled at us so fast that we can't even stop and say, Thank you, God. The world has manufactured a way to fill the Christian church's mouth wide with everything and anything and a little bit of truth in between so that they can not open their mouth long enough to breathe and to breathe out the words, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. There's no pause. There, there's no moment to reflect. Everything is going at lightning speed. Nobody wants to slow down. And God doesn't receive the thanksgiving and praise He deserves. And the church has taken hook, line, and sinker. The same stuff the world is putting out in large measure. In Neil Postman's words of his book, we're amusing ourselves to death. And it's not that it's an issue of technology. It's the issue of using it wrong. 
And even the news and the politics has become entertainment. And some of the ministries that we follow is nothing more than Fantasia, a big, fat show. And they're telling you everything but the gospel. They're telling you, you've got to do something to change all this mess. The gospel says you couldn't change it. And you still can't change it. And so that's why God sent a deliverer to this earth. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he was born in a manger. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is our Lord. And he lived a perfect life. He has active righteousness that was accounted to all who will believe in him. Passive and whereby he suffered all that we deserved upon a cross. And on the third day he was raised up from the grave. Not so to tell us and make us able to change the world. But to show us how inept and unable we are to change the world. And if anything that should come out of the Reformation, it is absolute 100% dependence on that which the world counts foolishness and even some of the church that's putting on a show to build their own kingdoms. It's not a show. Any good show arises out of the basis of this. You lose this, you lose true entertainment. There's a time for entertainment, right? There's a time to watch and laugh and enjoy and reflect and get caught up in all of it. But there's nothing of that to enjoy if there's not a rock of truth that is steering the way and that is constantly directing what we do, what we say, what we act out in life to say one thing, and that is man is incapable of saving themselves. Man is incapable of changing the world, whether it be through politics, medicine, science, through church schemes, whatever it is. Man cannot do it. That's why God sent a deliverer. And so it doesn't matter what source it's coming out of if they're not saying and preaching Christ as the only way of salvation and the only way to live a life pleasing to God. And if they're preaching anything about meriting the pleasure of God by one's works, you don't have a gospel that's true, you have a false gospel. And even if it's not spoken explicitly in those terms, if it's a big show causing the church to look and, and watch and be in awe and say, that's the way. Well, if it's not the way of Christ, it is not the way. It doesn't bring any rest. It doesn't cause people to be able to take a breath and be able to say, thank you, God, for anything. All it's doing is just overflowing you just like the world does with the news. The news is entertainment. How sad it is to look through the news feed and to actually get to the point that it becomes our entertainment. But the truth be known, it does sometimes. And that's what we need to be aware of. Is that we're not focusing on Agrippa, but we're focusing on the man who's humble before Agrippa proclaiming the gospel. Well, you've heard his testimony before. We don't have to recount every single aspect of it, but the major things that come out of the text of what he defended is vital because he stands before Agrippa and defends the gospel in a way that's quite unexpected. He doesn't defend it that it is this new thing in which you are needing to accept. He defends it in the sense it's an old thing that actually is true to that which should have been accepted long ago. And he begins in his history of conversion, which can be called the history of salvation, with the idea of his covenant faith. He says in verse 6, I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. When he tells the history of his conversion, he doesn't begin at the point of his road to Damascus experience. He begins with the faith that was of old. 
How about you? You're given an opportunity to tell the world about what God has done in your life. Where do you begin? Now, I would dare say that many, many of us will begin at our experience. But I think Paul teaches us something there here of, of great joy. He teaches us, you know, the history of our conversion didn't begin when we began to follow Jesus in this life. It began before we began to follow Jesus in this life. It began in a covenant from eternity. It began in a promise to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. Notice this is strict order. The Hebrew order, evening, morning, night and day follows the Reformation after darkness, light. It's just a beautiful token again of the consistency of the faith throughout all time. We hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he's saying what Jesus said about the scriptures. He said, these things were predicted by me in Moses and the prophets and the writings. It's the very thing on Luke 24's account where they're going down the road of a mess and they would say, did not our hearts burn within us when we talked to him on the way? Or he talked with us. And that's even another example for the fact is, is there they were talking to Christ, Christ talking to them, and their hearts burned within them. They were having experience of it. They didn't even realize who he was, and he broke the bread, and their eyes were open, and then he was gone. But before they recognized it, he was already ministering. You see, the Christian faith doesn't teach for you and me to respond to a show that is put on by shenanigans like people like Finney. Notice the history. It's a show. We could name others. The idea is the church was turned into a show for the past hundred years in our nation. And we're reaping its consequences. It's a silly thing people say. We want to go back to that, isn't it? You would never say you want to go back to that if you realized the show it was. And the shallowness it gave to the church. If anything, we need to press on to this. So I would encourage you, just simply take from Paul this lesson. Your salvation didn't begin the moment you could understand the gospel. It began before you were even capable of it. It began before you ever even were birthed into this world. It began in God. The gospel is no gospel if it's not the good news about a God, triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who does the work of deliverance for those who are in darkness and death and unable to save themselves. What a folly it is then to get up and to tell people, if we do this, this, and this, we can change the world. It's not to say that people don't need to take responsibility. That's called sanctification, and that will happen as a result and as an outflow and as a fruit of gospel preaching. But the problem is, we as humans should not trust ourselves to focus there, because if we don't preach the gospel, we don't get there. We lose the gospel. And we begin to focus on do these things and live rather than believe this Jesus. That's a big difference. You lose something of joy. You lose the makarios. You lose the cheerfulness of every little task in life, whatever's next in your coming day, week, years. You lose the ability to cheerfully say this is another token of an opportunity to serve the Lord. You lose the ability to pause with information overload and to control all the amount of information you're reading. You lose the ability to walk in sanctified living, to renew your minds, because you don't have time to do it, and let alone you lack the joy to do it, because you're missing the fact 
that there's a God in eternity who came after you at the appropriate time because in eternity He promised to save a people. It's the Reformed faith. It's what we believe to be the Christian faith. It's no faith at all if it's not Christian. If it's not the Christianity at its core and the gospel at its center, we miss and we lose the fact of rejoicing in the works that we do for the glory of the Lord that He's prepared before time. I mean, if He's prepared works before time, how are we going to come up with some type of gospel He didn't prefer prepare before time? And so then we might want to diagnose ourselves a little bit, wouldn't we? And think about it. To be the physician, it seems we're having to be physicians in our physical lives these days with the medical practices just going in the cahoots. We also have to think about the fact is we also have a responsibility to look at ourselves a minute and ask, where's the joy in our lives, in our ministries, in our vocations, and these type of things? Is there Thanksgiving overflowing or is there an absence of it? Maybe, maybe it's a day-to-day to return back to when did salvation really, really have its history Go back to the covenant. Go back to what God did. Go back to focusing on the fact that there is revealed in this book a God who before our lives existed chose a people. And I believe that's why so many people, at least through a resurgence of Reformed theology, have found that to be absolutely the case. There's other things, though, too. He finds... In telling his history of conversion, he doesn't stop with that. And we can't stop with it either. He's going to be faithful, which requires a complete, holistic telling of this account. And he says, I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And here he is confessing his failure. He said, I I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, after receiving authority from the very chief priests that are condemning him or tried to, he cast his vote, he said, for those people to be put to death. He was there, responsible for, in some measure, families to be widowed, children to be made fatherless and motherless, carried off to prison, executed. He's responsible. He's saying, I failed to see the right history of conversion. I failed to see the gospel. And I punished them in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme, which is really what we see of torture. And we see that originating even in this this Roman kind of world where they would try to make people blaspheme, to bring them to the point where they would say something against the Lord. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And all of this, Paul would say, would be service to God. He would say, if you asked Apostle Paul, he would say, I'm serving the Lord. And he really believed it. And he says that was a failure. He wasn't serving the Lord because what he, ex- he recounts next is he recounts, he recounts this matter of his calling, really his conversion calling, Really, in one sweep, when he goes into verses 12, in connection, I journeyed to Damascus. He had the authority of these chief priests. And he tells them exactly what happened. He tells them it was a supernatural event. He tells them that all had fallen to the ground. And in the midst, there was a voice speaking to him in Hebrew and confronting him with these words, Saul, Saul, why? Are you persecuting me? Here's a living Christ on the throne saying he's being persecuted when Paul is persecuting the church. And he makes this statement. This is an additional detail worth noting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And he's describing Paul as losing his humanity at this point. That it is to be unhuman the way you're acting. You're like animals. And you're kicking the goads. And an animal would kick the goads until it bled. It would be pure folly to do this. It would be hurting oneself to do this. But he's saying, Paul, you're like that. You're like an animal, like an ox, kicking the goats. And you're you're not acting human. And so I'm speaking to you like a beast. And he said, 
Who are you, Lord? It's always hard to figure out how did he say that out. It's a question here. Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And at this point, you're thinking, this is over. I mean, if there was like a break in the page or if this was like, you know, chapter and then we had to go to the next chapter. I mean, this would be anticipation. This would be, well, I mean, if I had to guess what's going to happen, God is going to just obliterate the man. God's going to judge the man, right? It's like Isaiah 6. He has revealed to him the holiness of God. What do you think is going to happen? Well, Isaiah thought this is over. Woe is me. This is the end. And what's astounding here in Luke is he says, but rise and stand on your feet. This is like Ezekiel was told. Stand on your feet, son of man. It's a prophetic call. He's called like a prophet. And the Lord says here, I appeared to you for this purpose. And think about the magnitude of this fact that God's appeared to us all like this in a sense. If we read the Scriptures and believe, God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world. There it is. I mean, after you read the first part, you really could end up concluding, but not for me. And, and if He did appear, it was to condemn man. And the Scripture says, no, He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. The biggest blindness that has to be removed off of people's eyes is the truth about God. That's why it's the gospel of God. Good news about God. This is Reformation teaching. Luther said, I would stand on my head for joy if I knew there was a God who loved me. And again, go back to the showboat ministries. Are they really communicating that God loves people? I mean, go to the one extreme where they're just flattering people with all of their words that are God's words, giving them inspirational, motivational speeches. Everybody knows deep down they don't love the people. They love themselves. Or go to the other extreme where they're showboating it all the time and they basically just get into a grumbling session and put on a show about all the problems in the world. This is where Neil Postman comes in. He says... So you got all this information, you got all these things coming out on the screen, all these problems. And so based on the amount of problems you now knew that you didn't know, what are you going to do about it? And Postman says, I know what you're going to do about it. Absolutely nothing. And isn't that true? We read down through the stories, we read down through the next information, we see all the problems of the world, what are we going to do about it? Absolutely nothing. Our action to doctrine ratio is absolutely embarrassing. And everybody does have the goal. Yeah, we should do something. Or yeah, I want to do something. And the point of the matter is not to say, okay, let's make a church that does something. I saw on the road traveling yesterday that they had a sign up that they were doing practical discipleship. Well, all it takes is a sign like that. My car, boom. We got a conversation going. <laughs> Practical discipleship? I mean, what other discipleship is there? Like, impractical discipleship? We're going to go learn for the purpose of doing nothing? What, why is the adjective even there? I mean, it's just discipleship. Why would you call it that? Well, most likely, you're calling it that because you're saying those who are out there learning the Bible aren't really doing discipleship. It's us very austere Christians that are doing discipleship. We're going to build a fence on Sunday. We're going to be the upper crust. We're the practical disciples. I had a man come in here one Sunday morning. He comes in, he says, you know, the pastor up the road, he's all into doctrine. And so I came here and I'm thinking, my goodness, gosh, something... Man, I gotta review my ministry. We've got some problems. Well, obviously someone like that isn't gonna last long because doctrine is what's going to change people's lives. Romans, as we're gonna hopefully go into, is the very fact that doctrine is pastoral. You're not gonna help anybody long term if you don't have doctrine. Doctrine's teaching. Practical discipleship. Just a silly thing. You know, the silliest thing is not that somebody came up with that. The silliest thing is that there was a group of people that accepted it. They're acting like they don't have a shepherd. 
because they don't. Somebody's got to, somebody has got to be able to discern that kind of nonsense has no place. We need to be biblical in what we are espousing and how God says to do things. We don't have the liberty to go and do what we want. We have the liberty to go do what God wills. And His will is perfectly revealed in Scripture. Rise and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you servant and witness the things which you have seen, and to that which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn darkness to light, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the defense. He ends with a complete Christ. He speaks. The honor is bestowed on Paul that it says, I've, I've appeared to you so you would open eyes. Now, hold on. You're telling me the minister here opens eyes? That's what it says. Why would God bestow that on Paul ministering the gospel to people? Well, it wasn't to give honor to Paul so that he's worshipped. Nobody here is worshipping Paul. The point was, is to see what Paul's doing is actually doing something in the name of the Lord with power. Nobody is going to say at this point where he is said to open the eyes of the blind to say, Paul, no, no, I got to correct you. You see, um, you don't open the eyes of the blind. That's what God does. But the Bible says here that Paul was appointed to open the eyes of the blind. God has appointed ministers in the church in order to open blind eyes, not to confer worship to them, but to actually confer honor to the Holy Spirit. This is the way Calvin sees it. This is the way I see it, is that we ought to be very careful of the fact that we do not devalue ministry to the point where we always have to correct it and say you do nothing when the fact of the matter is ministry is a powerful thing and has a great responsibility. But on the other side of things, we should never go so far as to follow a ministry blindly without every any inspection of the scriptures saying, does this match with the text? But I find it to just be quite strong here. And not to ever be weakened. The gospel ministry opens blind eyes. And is it not the case in our experience? We don't have the experience of Paul. We shouldn't expect the exact experience of Paul. Nor should we expect that we're in the first part of Pilgrim's Progress. We should probably expect to be more like Christiana. So everybody's experience is different. But one thing that's universal about it all. Is that somebody told us about Christ. Somebody explained the scriptures to us and we believed. Mm -hmm. And it's contrary to Christianity to not look back and say, thanks be to God for that ministry. It may not be a perfect ministry. It may have all its flaws, but God used that ministry as a powerful thing to change me. And I don't need to stop and explain what I really mean is. God changed me. It wasn't really the ministry changed me. And I got to go into all that. No, the ministry changed my life. And I can equivocate and thank God that ministry changed my life because God, this Holy Spirit, was in that changing. And I, I don't have to go beyond that. I can just give glory to God for the ministry and for the men that have labored to bring the gospel to me and I should thank God for them. And I think we get to the point sometimes we're afraid to commend anybody as if they might be too puffed up. I just haven't met a lot of people in the average everyday life that are, that are just going to be so inflated that they're going to sit around and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one to be worshipped, I'm the Lord. And there's a few out there. But we're just talking about every average everyday ministry of looking and viewing the ministry with a higher esteem than the average American does. And the church ought to have a right view of ministry. And I believe right here we get opportunity to get that. Mm. Ministry, this true ministry always points to Jesus, but it is commendable in Jesus' eyes as powerful. 
What does it take? What does it take to show the world Christianity is innocent? That's what Luke's getting at. What Hebrews wrote, they didn't announce that to begin with the answer. They made you get to the center of the text and then they said, here it is. It's like a mountain always in the way they're teaching. Well, what is Paul doing here? He has just argued, contrary to the way we would design it, he had just argued Christianity is innocent because it's actually real, true Judaism. Paul is not being shown here to be a faithful Christian. He's being shown to be a faithful Jew. And that is astounding. He's saying Christianity is legal before you, King Agrippa, because it already is in existence from of old. It is real, true Judaism. And just like Machen said of the liberals, you're using the language, you're using the terms of Christianity, but you're not Christian. Stop calling yourself Christian. And Paul's defense and his character here is saying to the Jews, you're not really Jews. This is Judaism. It's already been legalized by Rome. It brings up issues of church and state. The state apparently here of Rome and the empire had a right to give legal precedence and freedom to the religions that they deemed acceptable to their society and they had deemed Judaism to be one of them. Instead of Paul coming and trying to prove all the good things Christianity does for the society, he doesn't go there at all. He doesn't come out proclaiming, we're going to do good, we're going to build fences, we're going to make the government better, we're going to be the fixers. He doesn't say any of that. We're going to vote for you, doesn't say any of that. He says, we're already legal because we're the true Jews. Paul wasn't a converted Jew, he was a completed Jew. And he's saying that the faith he has is a faith from the very beginning of time that predicted a Messiah to crush the serpent's head, to destroy death and sin and Satan. And he's simply now following it how it should always be followed by all men. And so Christianity is proven innocent before the world in the first century before the last empire to be destroyed by the Apostle Paul to show this religion is not some new sect. It is actually the old story that came out of the Genesis 3.15 promise. That's the argument. And to be a faithful Jew, he not only needs to defend his own ministry and make that known, but he has to declare the gospel. And so the last part of the text deals with, he's declaring two Agrippa, the gospel. And he's saying, while there is a relationship that the state has a right to say, this is a legitimate religion, he is also, as a religion, able to say to the state, you're following the wrong one. And he calls the king, with the knowledge the king has, he calls the king to the same faith and repentance that he would call the peasant to. And he calls that king to believe that he, the Christ, had come and suffered according to the scriptures, rose from the dead, and that he is a light to the people of the Jews and Gentiles, and that there's only one way of salvation, and that is for both Greek and Jew, and also for ruler and non-ruler. And he appeals at this point, they would pick up stones for others, but God's providential protection was over Paul. Festus, all he could do is shout out an objection in a loud voice and say, Paul, you're out of your mind. And the world does this to Christians today. They say, your brain's sick. The first thing, when they can't prove anything else and everything's rational and reasonable, they've got to go there. They've got to say, you're just out of your mind. You're thinking crazy. And what does Paul do? Paul says, not out of my mind. I'm speaking very rational words and true words. And the reason people don't believe is, is several things. 
One of the things why people don't believe today in the world just as it was then, and I think I got some of this from Lloyd-Jones to give credit, is they simply don't believe the facts. They believe their feelings. And so they keep going off their feelings. And they never believe. Some people, it's because they believe in so-called science. And they say, oh, you've got to prove this to me, prove this to me. There's never enough proof. Even though all the proof can be set out there, it's never going to convert anybody. And feelings are never going to convert anybody. Festus is here objecting. He cannot believe. He just can't believe. He can't hear and he can't receive the rational words sent forth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, Paul sets quite an example of ministry. A lot different than these showboat religions that are out there today. What do they do? They don't come out here. I mean, the instinct of the flesh, like the world would want to talk, would be to say and address this man a lot differently, wouldn't it? But don't miss that what he, Paul, Paul says, most noble or excellent Festus. He, he addresses this objector with respect. He doesn't mock him. He doesn't give a, a series of means to humiliate him and show him he's out of the club. He speaks to them, to that man with the dignity of the office he serves in the land. He respects him and he calls him most noble or excellent Festus. It's a model. That is a model of ministry to the state. I mean, the whole world out there, the whole world, you've got, you've got people trying to kill people and you have people that are trying to embarrass people and shame people and they're on different sides but they all unite around one thing. They so-called call themselves conservatives. But I'm not sure they're Christian. When I look at Scripture, I'm just not sure. I'm not seeing it. I think people know when they see it. I think when they heard and saw Paul, they knew it was real. All they could do is mock. All the king, the, the, the governor could do with mock. And Paul doesn't simply remain quiet. He does address him. He says you're wrong, but he does it respectfully. And he says, basically he says, I'm not talking to you. I am speaking rational words, but I'm not talking to you. I am addressing the king right now. And he speaks to the king. And isn't that also a bit of wisdom? A lot of times we have these, these come in, you know, they call them trolls, right? And they kind of jump in on the story and, the, and they distract you from the real conversation. You have to be careful of the fact that treat that with respect, but also don't get distracted. If you're talking with someone, speak to them. Engage them. Finish it out. Or you won't be faithful. You could have defended yourself and shown yourself innocent, but you're not a faithful minister of that gospel until you have declared to them the whole news. And the news isn't just about what God did in your life. The news is about what must be done in that person's life. You can't call yourself faithful in life if you've just shown yourself to be an innocent and good person. As a gospel minister or as a Christian who is endeavoring to glorify God in His Word, it's not just looking innocent. It's also declaring the full gospel of God as to why you are what you are and why you do what you do. And he declares to Agrippa very clearly, I speak boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. Notice Christianity did not go find itself by finding a bunch of gold bars. It did not go out and find some secret letter. It did not go out and have a special secretive, secretive thing that couldn't be told to all the world. It didn't go into some place without windows and worship and have secret signs. It wasn't a secret religion ever. It was open to the scrutiny of the public, of the government, and of everybody. And it demanded that it would be accepted because it's the old religion. 
innocent, legal before the world, and the best news for the world. King Agrippa, do you believe? Now we're getting complete. And what is he asking him to believe? Do you believe? Do you believe the prophets? In other words, do you believe the promise that was made of this one to come, who I've declared to you, Christ, crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, raised the third day, ascended into heaven, and coming to judge the living and the dead? Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe, or are you just on your feelings still? Are you like Festus, who's standing there saying, you're out of your mind? Are you waiting for enough scientific questions to be answered? If you're waiting for more evidence, it'll never come. Evidence won't convert you. He asked the king on the knowledge that he knows these things. He's without excuse. You know the scriptures. Do you know them? Then you're without excuse. You know these things. But do you believe them? A faithful Jew not only proves himself innocent in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he actually declares it with a call to repentance and faith in the one true God, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe the prophets? And he says, I know you believe. Now this last part, it's important. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And some translate this, the scholars I've read almost is totally out of the picture on this one. It's not almost. But it says in a little, literally. And also one thing is it's not a question. So it indicates to me that King Agrippa is making a statement. You persuade me in a short time to be a Christian. Now, it seems to indicate from the next sentence, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you and so forth. It indicates from that that the statement could be phrased as a question to communicate what's going on there, but there's no question mark. And the Greek did have a way of putting a question mark. It was a semicolon in ours. It, it's not there. It's not in the Greek. So the question mark is put there in the sense of trying to make sense of what's going on here, context. Could be a good setup, but the idea is that he's making a statement. In a short time, he persuaded me to be a Christian. And so, whether short or long, and I think this is another challenge, you know the Scriptures today. Not talking to King Grip, talking to you. You know the Scriptures today. You know the truth about Jesus. You know what saves and wasn't, doesn't save. And you're still doing this on your supposed time. You're still playing around. You're waiting for something. Paul's saying, do you believe? And I'm saying, do you believe? Because if you believe, then you're to be faithful to not merely say you believe, but to be faithful to now act on that belief and to stand for the sake of Christ. You've got to do business with the Holy Spirit on that. This preacher doesn't change people's lives. Christ does. But the ministry does have power. And I believe in saying and calling you to that. God is pleased and has been pleased throughout ministry at least a period of time since I've been able to see people believe. Trust the Lord. I'm thankful for conversations people had with me that called me to believe. Preachers that preach, so I would believe. So whether short or long, could it come long? It could. I'm not trying to scare you. It could. God may be so merciful to let you go 20, 30 years and let you sit under the ministry of the gospel and then save you. He could. But man, anybody that loved you would never say, well, just take your time. Maybe hear it another 20 times. Now, anybody that loves you says, man, get this right today. This world is so, so fragile. So many things. Things just happen. All kinds of, man, get this right today. Nobody who loved you would forego saying those things. 
Anybody who loves you saying, please, please get this right. And I'm not saying, because I did a funeral yesterday, I'm not saying there are some that are genuine Christians that may have not expressed that as clearly as some who have been given time to do that. I'm not saying that, I don't know. But I'm certainly not going to pronounce them in heaven. But what a joy it is, practically speaking, to leave to your family members and your friends little doubt in regards to where you stand with the Lord. And I, I just think that's, that's not a wise thing to do. Not, not when you've stood, not when you've stood and seen the dirt go over grave after grave. It's, it's just not a wise thing to do. And, uh, and we're just trying to be helpful. Because not only do we want families here to be blessed, but we, we want them to be able to, when things go difficult, to be strengthened even in the hard times. And you really can be responsible for making that harder, harder on those you say you love. Because you're not settled. I mean, you may really believe. But it's just not settled. And I think chapter 26 really gives us a pattern saying, if he can say to this king, settle it. We don't know the end of the story, but we know what he said. He was faithful. So, I'm challenged. I'm challenged to be faithful. I mean, am I just defending, always defending myself, ministry, and Christianity, and, and that's part of it, but, but it can't stay there. You also have to declare, hey, believe. Do you believe? Like 26 is a gem. All you Christians today know this. Just like Paul, he said, I've had the help that comes from God to this day. Think about Paul saying, what he's saying there. I've had the help that comes from God to this day, meaning even before this experience, God was helping me. Everything I have in life, every meal put on a table, even while I'm persecuting the church of God, God was a shepherd to me so faithful, so patient, so loving, so gracious. I've had his help to this day. Man, when you become a believer, it's just the amazing worth of the Lord in our eyes goes way up, even though his worth doesn't change. The reality that when I was assaulting everything that God was about, he still fed me. He still clothed me. He sheltered me. All the while I'm kicking and screaming and bloodying my own life spiritually, he's loving me. I mean, you get a gospel like Paul gets, you can never get up and preach. Do something to save yourselves. You can only say Christ saves sinners. And you'll know it when he does. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for your word that gives us the good news. The good news that is about you, God, and not about man. Our trust is not in what man can do. Our trust is in what you did through your son who became man. And we ask you to bless now this which we have considered in this time. And we thank you for the opportunity to share it. We, Father, ask you as we go to the table to remember here in this, this ceremony of sorts, this ordinance, the body and blood of our Lord, given for sinners to unify us, to proclaim to us, and to proclaim by the church the death of our Lord, who not only expiated and took away and covered our sin by his blood, but who turned your wrath away so that we are made at peace with you. 
And how much more, Lord, should we be at peace with each other if we are at peace with you? May all who believe take this. And as they take it, may they do so in good conscience. And those who do not believe, may they forego it. May they deal in this time with their own unbelief by looking to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Forgive us our sins, Father. And once again, strengthen your dear church in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.